Noah, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. To get started, what does HomeTap do? So HomeTap effectively gives people who have equity built up in their homes a way to access that without having to sell their homes or take on additional debt and monthly payments. So effectively, a homeowner with some equity in their house can sell a percentage of the value of the property to us. They get a, a check from us and they don't have any payments or interest for 10 years. So it's a it's a good way to sort of tap into your equity without having to take on more monthly payments. Wow, and how would you describe your role at HomeTap? So I'm the chief legal officer, which uh, I think is a, a nice fancy title. Mm-hmm. Currently a team of one, so it, it's a little less fancy in that context. Right. But uh, we are doubling the size of the HomeTap legal team in about two weeks. Um, just made my first hire for the team. So I'll, I'll now be able to credibly say the home tap legal team without it sounding pretentious. Yeah. And it's funny because so many companies will have dozens of engineers or salespeople and people on customer service, but oftentimes the legal teams are are so small. And you know, prior to this, you were at Circle, is that right? Yeah, I was at Circle for five years, which is a, a cryptocurrency focused company based here in Boston. What makes you so interested in fintech, heavily regulated industries? Because this always been an interest of yours? Yeah, it's funny. I would say that the regulatory aspect isn't sort of the driver for what I find interesting. I think it's kind of a byproduct of the fact that I'm just generally interested in sort of new things and new technologies and things that I think over time can have a big impact. So with Circle joining crypto startup in early 2014 was kind of a a big leap into the ground floor of a new technology. And then now with HomeTap, it's it's kind of a, a new twist on something that's, you know, been historically the, you know, sort of an old stodgy business of of mortgage loans and things like that and, and forcing homeowners to often make kind of a binary choice between, you know, I, I either need to sell my all of my house or I need to not sell or I need to take on a loan with, you know, all these payments that are coming on a monthly basis and going from sort of the excitement of a new technology at Circle to here at HomeTap, you know, what I get the most enjoyment out of is, you know, we're cutting checks to homeowners every day. And a lot of these homeowners are, you know, pretty stressed out by the financial situations that they're in. So you get kind of the rewarding experience of sort of helping out these homeowners. And I think just naturally, you know, whenever money's at play, that's that's an area that's ripe for sort of innovation and, and figuring out creative ways to change things and help people. So I think that's sort of the common thread through Circle and HomeTap as opposed to specifically seeking something out that had a, you know, regulatory bent to it. And were you in big law before going in-house? I was. I was at a firm called Goodwin Proctor in the Boston office. I was in the technology companies group. So I mostly did private startup representation, M&A work, VC financings, that sort of thing. So it it was definitely a a transition from five years of sort of pure transactional based work into coming in-house where it's a little bit of everything. And out of curiosity, what are some of the things that you think big law trained you well for? for being, you know, sort of the first lawyer within a company? And what are some of the areas where you think Big Law could have done a better job at training you? The big area where it was helpful was sort of just the hours and repetition of gaining sort of the pure skills around understanding how private companies work, how they're financed, and sort of all of the technical details around that. 
I think the biggest change coming in-house is you have to sort of take a broader look and you're sort of in it for the whole life cycle. Uh, when I was at Goodwin, you know, you might work 80 hours a week for 10 weeks on a transaction. And then as soon as it closes, you kind of never find out what happened. Did the company succeed? Right. You know, what was the impact? How did the people at the company benefit from this? It was, you were just sort of, uh, you know, closed off in your little box where you focused on the one transaction that they needed. And I think that sometimes makes you kind of a, a deep expert in a few specific areas. Right. And then when you transition in-house, unless you're joining a big team, you know, you're, you're all of a sudden sort of having to broaden the scope of everything you focus on. The overall theme of this particular episode is really tailored towards things that first-time GC should know. So with that being said, I'd love to get into the nitty-gritty and learn about what a typical day looks like for you. You know, everything from like your hours that you're generally working and even what you spend most of your time on at HomeTap. Sure. Yeah. So I'll start out with the uh, the cliche answer of, you know, there's never a typical day at an early stage startup in the legal department. It, it kind of, because you're covering the full scope of legal needs of the company, it can vary pretty wildly. But I would say if you'd sort of take a, a couple weeks and sort of aggregate it into an average day, you know, I might spend an hour or two in the morning meeting with the finance and marketing teams to figure out what they have in the pipeline in terms of, you know, expansion into new states for our product or, you know, deployment of marketing materials, sort of what our growth trajectory is, both in terms of how the company is going to scale, how the size of the company is going to scale, what our hiring needs are, sort of working with them to kind of get a broader picture, which, you know, is pretty easy at a smaller company just because, you know, you're able to get that direct access to all the, the stakeholders. And then you kind of take that broader picture and sort of figure out what actionable items you can do to help push that forward. So in my case, you know, usually that ends up being a few hours of, I'd call it sort of regulatory and statutory research, because in connection with our product, dealing with real estate, there's a lot of state-specific nuance to how we need to, you know, launch in a new state and, and work with homeowners. So doing research around that. And then once sort of the regulatory foundation is set and you move on to sort of the more transactional contract side, which is what do the actual documents look like that we need to use with homeowners? How do we need to customize them based on who we're working with or what state we're in? And then sort of peppered throughout the day is just all the, you know, the random stuff that comes up, negotiating NDAs and offer letters and, you know, third-party contracts with vendors. And then depending on sort of timing and needs, you know, it takes a lot of money to uh, write checks to homeowners every day. So working with the finance team on sort of the capital side, you know, it's sort of the, those are the various buckets that'll typically come up in, a, in an average day for me. And what are your hours like? Is it similar towards what you were, you know, working at while you were at Circle or is it is it a lot more because this is a GC role? I would say it's it's, you know, it's pretty comparable. My hours are currently uh a little weird right now because I have a, a 6-month-old at home. Oh, congrats. So, uh <laughs> thank you. So, sometimes, you know, typically I'll get into the office around 8:30 or 9. A lot of days I leave by 4.30 or 5 o'clock so I can get home to spend some time with my daughter and then I'll sort of get back online for a couple hours at night. I think, you know, it's it's great that I have the flexibility to do that here. And it obviously is a little easier to work remote when you are a team of one. 
I think the big difference isn't so much between sort of home tap and circle. I would say it's between home tap and when I was at Goodwin, which was, I think the hours overall are probably not dramatically higher at a law firm, but I think it's because I have such insight into what the company's doing here, it's a little more predictable. So, you know, you're not sitting at your desk at, at 5 p.m. on a Friday waiting for that email that might come in to force you to work all weekend. It's, right. <laughs> it's a little, a, little more, a little more predictable, even if the volume might be somewhat comparable. Got it. And when you first started at HomeTap, what were, or just in general as an in-house attorney, what were some of the initial challenges that you dealt with and how did you overcome them? I think one of the big challenges, especially because I had already been in-house for five years, when you're shifting industries, I think that can be sort of a, a pretty daunting task. You know, five years at Circle, I kind of built up this huge, deep knowledge base about crypto-specific issues. And, you know, I dealt with a lot of the regulatory issues on that side. And so you kind of feel like you have you know, have amassed this whole wealth of knowledge. And then if you're you're shifting industries, you kind of feel a little bit like, why am I doing this to myself? I'm kind of starting over from scratch a little bit. And I think that for me, the big thing was just kind of understanding what your strengths are and sort of why the company hired you. I don't have a background in real estate. And HomeTap could have hired a chief legal officer that had spent, you know, 10, 15 years in the real estate industry. So they didn't. And I think it was because they wanted someone who had sort of a broader base of skills that could sort of handle the the full scope of legal needs of the company. So I think it's a lot of it is just sort of having confidence in what your skills are and why you were hired. So if someone asks me some esoteric legal question about the implications of a you know, specific type of lean in North Carolina, I don't have to you know feel bad saying I have no idea, but I can figure it out. So I think it's it's really just about sort of realizing what your strengths are and then sort of using that initial time, especially in the first three to six months to really get up to speed. And you know, I think you develop some of that subject matter expertise a lot faster than you think you would. And then along that, do you have mentors or people that you reach out to for advice since you're the sole lawyer there? Yeah. So in terms of people that I reach out to when I have questions, I guess there's there's a few different buckets. So one is just sort of the network of, of friends and colleagues that have built up over the years, just friends and, and former coworkers and things like that. You know, there's also a group called TechGC, which is a, a amazing resource for, for in-house lead attorneys at, at technology companies, which just been kind of blown away by how helpful that community is and sort of doesn't matter how crazy specific the question you have is, not only will someone have had experience with it, but they're willing to take time out of their busy schedule to, to give you information. And I think the, the third bucket that I've, I think some people might be surprised by is the, sort of the in-house counsel at some of our competitors. There's some companies in this same space that sort of operate on a similar model to HomeTap. And the, the GCs of those companies have been super helpful, especially in my, my early months, you know, in sharing some of the pain points that they've dealt with and some of the learnings they've had over the years. And, you know, I think on a lot of different fronts, you kind of might say, like, why would you help your competitors? You know, you guys are, are fighting over market share or whatever sure. it is. But I think when it comes to legal and regulatory matters, you know, there's a lot more to be gained by collaborating. 
and sort of becoming a resource for each other. So that's that's been something that has been uh, really helpful for me, especially during those initial months that I uh, came on board. And what are some of the tips you would share with first-time GCs? I think one of the things that I, I pursued that I wasn't sure I was going to be successful in was negotiating discounts with outside counsel. When you come from a, a law firm background, you kind of, okay, everyone has their hourly billing rates and, and that's what they get charged. And you can kind of squabble with a partner over writing off time if you think it's inappropriate. But the success rate that I've had and just getting sort of blanket percentage-based discounts with outside counsel has been pretty high. And I think becoming, you know, coming in as a new GC, whether or not you're replacing a GC that departed or whether you're the first legal hire, you know, it is a great time to kind of hit pause on all of your external law firm engagements and sort of reassess, are we using the right firms? Are we getting the most we can out of these firms? You know, I think they, on the other side, they get that. So they're open to to discounts and flat fee arrangements and things like that, which over time and, and you lock in some of these discounts if you use the same outside counsel for several years. I mean you can you can get hundreds of thousands of dollars and, and sort of legal budget savings and can do everything from sort of help you stay within budget to allow you to go to outside counsel more to justifying internal hires based on the, the budget saved on external counsel. No, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you had briefly touched on uh, Tech GC, which is you know fabulous resource. We hear it all the time. Are there any other resources you recommend for GCs that you find very valuable on your end? One thing I would say, in the past, I had kind of viewed conferences and law firm alerts and things like that as kind of a you know a pain in the ass that you had to unsubscribe from or ignore <laughs> folder on a regular basis. And I think that was just because I was sort of taking a passive approach to them where something would land in my inbox and I'd react to it. And I think sort of taking the time to affirmatively go out and find the ones that can be most helpful to you. And then, of course, sort of unsubscribing and sort of steering clear of the ones that aren't relevant. You know, it starts to become a really good resource, especially because if you don't have a broader legal team or you're not at a law firm, you might not hear sort of the updates on the latest and greatest of your specific field. So, you know, what I typically do is I I subscribe to a bunch of industry-related newsletters and law firm alerts and things like that. And I have them just sort of auto-foldered in my email. And then when I'm on the train in the morning commuting into work, I'll just sort of read through them. And it's it's a nice way to kind of start the day and get sort of a, a broader base of knowledge of sort of what new developments might be coming up in your space that right. your your company might have to be wrestling with. And when you're dealing with really complex legal challenges, you know, you touched on this earlier, for things that might be new to you, what's your approach to that? Do you typically just go directly to outside counsel right off the bat? I think whenever a sort of legal question or issue or challenge comes across my plate, you know, I kind of look at several different ways of, you know, sort of, I guess, scoring it in terms of the legal issues. So you kind of want to look at what are the consequences if I get this wrong? How likely are those consequences to happen? Is this an issue that we're going to keep seeing over and over again, or is it sort of a true fork in the road moment? And then if I do go to outside counsel, sort of what is that going to cost? Can I get them to just give me a little guidance and then I can sort of take it the rest of the way? And I think once you come up with sort of a, a broad sort of feeling about 
how all of those things sort of measure up in terms of the, you know, the size of the issue and how to deal with it. I think that's when I kind of make my decision between sort of on the spectrum of just make a gut decision on the spot versus, you know, have a full project through outside counsel. You just kind of learn to sort of do that calculus on your own on sort of a real-time basis. You know, it kind of gets to one thing that I always would use with, uh, you know, junior counsel that I'd work with in past companies was, you know, if you have 10 legal problems and going to outside counsel is going to cost 10000 bucks for each one and you end up getting one of them wrong and it costs the company $50,000. You know, at the end of the day, the company's still up fifty thousand dollars. Right. So you can't be you can't be scared to sometimes trust your instinct and and just sort of accept that you're not going to be right a hundred percent of the time. It's it's really just about understanding where it's you know it's a reasonable risk to maybe get something wrong versus this is sort of a huge issue for the company that we really need to get right and sort of have have day one foundation properly in place. The next question I had is, you know, say someone's an AGC or junior counsel somewhere, perhaps they're an associate at big law. Aside from the legal skills, you know, what do you think are the non-legal skills that are very important to succeed as a new general counsel? I guess there's a, a few things. I think the first is just to really understand that your role completely changes and the lens through which you view problems has to completely change. One of the reasons why business people often don't like working directly with outside counsel is the incentives aren't aligned. Outside counsel is going to be incentivized to be more conservative and sort of give the letter of the law interpretation as opposed to doing any sort of risk adjusted decision. So, you know, the way you have to, you have to be comfortable thinking of it, you know, in your position as sort of a shareholder of the company, right? Like one of the main reasons why, some people go in-house so that they can get equity and sort of be vested in the performance and success of a company. And, you know, if I want my equity in HomeTap be worth more in the future than it is today, you know, I can't say no to everything. I can't say yes to everything and just say, just sort of hope for the best. But it's about finding that balance where if I'm making a decision, it's because I've sort of done the risk calculation and decided that I think that this is the best thing to do to both grow and protect the the value of the company. What do you look for when you're hiring new folks that are looking to go in-house? One of the great things about being in a hiring position like this is you're able to sort of identify your own weaknesses and then hire to fill them. So in this specific example, you know, I mentioned earlier, I don't have a bunch of experience in sort of the, the real estate space. So we hired a regulatory counsel who's worked for 10 years in sort of the banking, lending, real estate world. And what it does is, you know, same way you would do if you were drafting a basketball team or anything is, you know, you already have some players in place and then you find people that are sort of fill complementary positions to that. And any particular resources you recommend for hiring talent, or was it more of like a spray and pray approach on on different websites to start getting some candidates? Yeah, so in terms of candidates, I think it was just sort of posting your typical places, LinkedIn and elsewhere, and then just sort of just doing sort of your typical hiring process and, and assessing sort of if someone's going to be a right fit for the company and sort of what you need and, and are they going to have the ability to to scale with the company. And you know, I think a lot of times 
people fall into a trap of sort of putting too much on, you know, this sort of amorphous cultural fit and sort of people, people sort of fall back to the, you know, would I like to have beers with this person afterward, <laughs> which is not a, not a super helpful way to measure whether they're going to, you know, help the company on a, a day-to-day basis. So I, I think it's really about finding someone who you might not have that sort of vibe with, but you know that they're complementary and they, and they sort of fill in the gaps that you have. And, you know, maybe if you're a little more sort of commercially minded and transactional driven, and they're a little more sort of conservative and regulatory compliance driven, can work together to uh, sort of create the perfect balance. Yeah, this was all really helpful and, and loads of good advice. And uh, we have a quick rapid fire round. Let's get started on that. So what's your favorite book that you recommend? Are you talking sort of legal focused books or just any book? Any book that's added a lot of value to your career in general. So I guess in terms of that, I I read a book, I first read it about 15, 20 years ago, and it's called Barbarians at the Gate. And it's, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Barbarians at the no. Gate, but it's, uh, it's a story about the leveraged buyout of RJR Nabisco. And oh, okay. uh, I remember bringing it on a vacation, this sort of big hardcover from the library book and sort of reading it on a beach. And my wife kind of turned to me and was like, okay, if, if, you, if you enjoy reading a book about a leveraged buyout on vacation, then being, <laughs> being a lawyer probably seems like the right shit for you. But, uh, <laughs> In terms of sort of uh, substantive books that I think have helped me, one thing that I like to do is is sort of find books that are, you know, tangential or, or related to the industry that you're working in, but have, you know, take take a different approach to it. You know, there's a book that I'm reading currently called Race for Profit, and it's about sort of discrimination in the lending world specifically as related to sort of racial discrimination after Fair Housing Act and things like that. And I enjoy reading books that are kind of, you know, in the same world that I'm currently in, but sort of come at it from a different angle and give me some new perspectives on it. Got it. Yeah, we'll be sure to link to both of those in the the notes. Great. I know that was not a very rapid fire answer, (laughs) so I'll I'll, I'll try to keep the rest shorter. No, it's, it's totally okay. Any favorite podcast that you listen to? Doesn't have to be law related. So I'm a big fan of the, uh, there's a podcast called Comedy Bang Bang that is like an improvisational comedy podcast where comedians play weird characters and sort of act out fake interviews. And it's kind of the furthest thing from anything legal. So that's, that's always a good commute home podcast to listen to, to just sort of totally take my mind off anything serious. And how about any mentors that you, you know, follow a lot on say social media or regularly interact with yeah i don't really have any like individual specific mentors there's a lot of you know i'd say sort of colleagues that i've had over the years that when i'm struggling with an issue that's not sort of a specific nuanced legal issue but just more of a how would you think about this problem how would you deal with this person i've found that i've sort of accumulated a bunch of different people over the years that i go to for specific specific questions around that, but I don't have any sort of singular mentor or role model. If you had to narrow it down, what are two apps or software tools that are just vital for your day-to-day that you can't really live without? So I would say the first, which is, I will preface saying it's the most boring legal answer ever, but real redlining software is... uh, (laughs) 
was one of one of my first sort of software based legal budget spends because the you know compare in word is not great and so i can't i can't live without my redlining software and then i would say the second is um i use we use slack a lot here at home tap and you know i think people sometimes will there's companies that over rely on Slack. You know, right. there's sometimes where you just want to get an email when there's, you know, seven questions and three attachments and things like that. But I've really enjoyed how it's allowed me, even when I'm, you know, working remotely or, or whatever, I can sort of feel like I'm still sort of connected to the office environment and the team. Um, so that's, that's been huge. And if you weren't practicing law, what would you be doing? If I wasn't practicing law and assuming I can't just I can't just be like retired on the beach somewhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't know. I don't really have any good backup plans. I think I'm I think I'm kind of stuck being a lawyer until I, I get to retirement. Not a bad gig. <laughs> and any advice for someone that wants to go in house or pursue a GC role? Like any parting words you want to leave them with? I think the biggest thing is understand why you want to leave and sort of what you're actually looking for. You know, especially if you're at a big law firm and you're thinking about making the jump to in-house, is it is it work-life balance? Is it sort of being more passionate about the work that you're doing? Is it because you want to have a broader practice as a GC at a smaller company? I think coming up with those sort of defined lists and, and using that to compare potential roles is, is hugely important because, you know, joining... 20 person legal team at a big institution that has sort of well-defined products versus joining a 20 person company uh, that's still sort of figuring things out and scaling are going to be two very different environments. So even though they're, they're under the go in-house umbrella, I think you kind of really need to understand what your, your risk tolerances and your desires and sort of what's motivating you to make the jump. Awesome. This was really good. Um, I had a lot of fun on this. Thanks for having me on. I had a lot of fun.